Have you ever known people who would act a certain way when they knew people might be watching or listening, but then totally different when they didn't think those people were watching or listening. Maybe you're flattering when the boss is around your speech, but then behind his back you tell a different story. Or maybe you try to communicate that you're super spiritual when around other Christians, but then the conversation dictates otherwise when with unbelievers. It could even be here in the worship center when you talk about your interest in one another and you say, you come first, uh, and then I care about you, I want to listen to your problems, but then maybe get away from the building and it's a different story altogether. So today as we continue in our series, Summer Mix 22, we're actually going to focus on the subject of sincerity. And Jesus wants us to be sincere. He wants us to be true. He wants us to be honest and genuine in the way that we interact with others and behave before God. And Jesus applauded sincerity. And whenever he saw it, he was constantly pointing it out. So we're going to look at this story in two parts because Jesus actually told it in two parts. We're going to look at the obstacles to sincerity and then we're actually going to look at some steps on the pathway to sincerity. So here are the obstacles, beginning with Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus told this story to some people who thought they were very good and looked down on everyone else. A Pharisee and a tax collector both went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee stood alone and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people who steal, cheat, or take part in adultery, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give one-tenth of everything I get. So this man actually maintained a false sense of security. He was secure in who he thought he was. But listen again to why Jesus tells the story to some people who thought they were very good and looked down on everyone else. So here's this group of people. They have this false sense of security and Jesus realizes he has a, captured, a captive audience right now and so he decides that he is going to tell them who their hope should really be in and not in themselves. But this man arrogantly tried to impress others. But when he prayed, his goal was to draw attention to himself. It wasn't to draw attention to God. And we've all seen people like that who try to impress us. It might be with their language. It might be with their credentials. It could be the connections that they have, the skills that they have, any of those things. And they just think that they can impress us because of how wonderful they are in those areas. Back when I would have been probably a year old, the pastor of a church in Charlottetown, PEI, was invited to come out to the rural church that I grew up in. And this guy, I was told, used all kinds of big words. So the pastor of my church, who actually ended up being my mentor later on, he told this guy, look, this is a bunch of farmers. Please don't use all those big words. Well, he ramped it up. He used even more. And apparently my dad went to my pastor and he said, uh, what was that? They, they, they couldn't understand half of what this man said. But people will try to impress. 
And in ancient Rome, sculpting was a popular profession at that time, and it was because there were statues everywhere. They were on pretty well every building, both public and private. So the marketplace was just flooded with sculptors. That meant that the quality started to suffer. And the less skilled sculptors, they would cover their errors by taking wax and putting it over the mistake. And that was fine until the people got them home. They'd been out in the hot sun for a few days, and then the wax would start to drip down, and that mistake would be very apparent. But there were authentic sculptors, and they would mark their, sculpt their sculptures with these words, Sena Siva, without wax. And when you sign your letters and your emails, with sincerely, you are actually using the root word of that because that means it's coming from the heart. It's true. Now, we want people to like us, so how many times in our lives does the wax come out to cover over the weaknesses that we have? Because we want people to think that we're something really special. We don't want them to know of these mistakes, these inner things that are going on in our lives. So we will try to impress people so that they will hire us right on the spot. We'll say, hey, I love what you did with the place, or that dress, it makes you look 10 years younger. Or they'll say something like, I'm, I'll be praying for you, but no interest whatsoever in praying for the person. If we're not careful, we can end up saying things to impress people, and we don't really mean it. Now this guy in the parable, he actually foolishly compared himself to others. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And have you ever noticed that when we compare ourselves to others, we never compare ourselves to the ones that might be superior to us. We always pick out those people that we feel we are spiritually superior to so that it makes us feel so much better. I read about a sales guy who was on his way to an appointment and he drove through a rural area and he noticed this barn that had been freshly painted with just a flat white paint. But in comparison to the mud in the barnyard, that barn looked so bright. And then he went on, made his sales, came back through the same area, but five centimeters of snow had fallen in the meantime. And all of a sudden, that barn looked so dull in comparison to the purity and the whiteness of that snow. When you compare yourself to the barnyard of this world, you can look pretty pure. But when we compare ourselves to the purity of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, we just don't look so hot. So Isaiah, he said in chapter 64, all of us are dirty with sin. All the right things we have done are like filthy pieces of cloth. All of us are like dead leaves, and our sins, like the wind, have carried us away. So compared to the purity and holiness of the Lord, we fall pretty far short. And it's just like we read in this verse in Romans 3.10. As the scriptures say, there is no one who always does what is right, not even one. You may know that from the translation, there's no one righteous. And that's what righteous means, to live a right life, to always do the right thing. And then this guy, he stubbornly is counting on works to save him. He said, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of everything I get. 
One fast a week is all that was required of the Jewish people, but he decides that he's going to gain some special merit by fasting twice a week, every Monday and Thursday. And then they expected that this extra fasting was going to gain them some extra credit. But note, this man wasn't alone in his assessment, as there are multitudes, there are millions of people who buy into a belief system that we don't need a savior. And they merely elevate themselves. And they think, if I can just do more good things than bad things, if that list is longer than this list at the end of my life, then I am going to go on to heaven. And if we were to go out onto the street and we were to conduct interviews and ask people this question, who goes to heaven? The majority would answer the good people. Now, in some cases, <clears throat> that's true. There, we think of Christians. There are a lot of good Christians, many good Christians. But a better answer should be forgiven people, people who've put their trust in Jesus Christ. They are the ones that are going to heaven. The religion says do. Everything is do. It's follow these rules. It's try to earn God's favor. While Christianity says done. The work has already been done in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And our salvation doesn't hinge on whether we can live a life of perfection. And we thank God for that because none of us could live that life. I know there was one girl in our neighborhood, really good friends with my daughter, and she thought that I was perfect. And I said, oh, dear, we're so, I'm so far short of that. And the, none of us can live up to that standard. So our salvation is based upon what Jesus did on the cross and our putting our trust in him as our Lord and Savior. So someone will say, but God will save me because I'm a good person. But then the question we might ask is, good compared to what? Our good deeds are an expression of our gratitude for what God has done for us in forgiving our sins, in making us a new creation. But if you could somehow earn God's favor through doing good deeds, then it would have been a waste for Jesus to have sacrificed his life. And it would have been a tragic mistake by God. He would have really let Jesus down if he made him go through all of that and we could be forgiven through our own merit. So here's the pathway to sincerity. Jesus is kind of changing gears here and he allows a, a despised tax collector to show us this pathway. So we're back in Luke 18, verse 13. The tax collector standing at a distance would not even look up to heaven, but he beat on his chest because he was so sad. He said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I tell you, when this man went home, he was right with God, but the Pharisee was not. All who make themselves great will be made humble, but all who make themselves humble will be made great. So I want you to notice that there are four stations along the pathway to sincerity. And the first station is sincere motives. This tax collector, he stood at a distance. He wasn't there so that people could hear his prayer. He wasn't there so that he, that he could impress people. His purpose wasn't for showing up to network with others and sometime find some business leads. He was there with sincere motives of connecting with God. And 
That's why you came here today, to connect with God, or at least I hope that's why you're here. And I hope that's why you pray to him regularly and why you read his word regularly. So there are some who feel that as long as they're sincere, they've got it made. They don't have to believe in God. They, they don't have to believe in what the Bible says. But that's certainly not a biblical concept, and it certainly isn't logical. Because there have been people who were very sincere, but they it saw it lead to wrong actions in their lives. Like some people are starting to compare Vladimir Putin to Adolf Hitler. And I read about Hitler, and he said at one time he actually held up his tattered Bible, and he said that he drew strength and direction from this Bible for his new government. The words that he read in the Bible, he said, convinced him of that. Yet his actions were so far away from the Bible. Was he sincere? Yes. But were his actions right? They were far from it. They were as far away from God as possible. Now the other extreme is the lost son who repented in the parable that Jesus told about the prodigal son. The older brother, he's complaining, but he is a perfect example of right actions, but wrong motives. He stayed on the farm. He never ran away from there. He didn't desert his father, but he was doing it for the wrong reasons. Christ's plan is that you have both kind of blended together, and God's watching what you do and watching why you do it. Just under 20 years ago, I encountered one of the stressful, excuse me, the most stressful times in my ministry. I actually performed a funeral service for a 16-year-old boy who was passenger in the back seat of a car that was involved in a crash during a high-speed road race out on Sackville Drive. And there was kind of an issue with teenagers racing at that time. The mother of this teen and this son and her other two sons had moved to HRM probably 10 years prior to that. And I was guided to them by a pastor from the church that they had previously attended. And this family had gone through a lot of turmoil over the years. And then her oldest son, he contracted leukemia. And I spent a lot of time visiting in the hospital and supporting the family. And he eventually died. And then here was his second son, being involved in this accident. And I heard about the accident on the news, but no names were mentioned. And then shortly after that, I got a phone call from this woman that was crying so hard, I, I couldn't even understand what she was saying. And finally, she got herself under control, and she said, could you bury my son? And I still wasn't catching on. And then she mentioned a road accident, and then I realized what was happening. So here I was, I was now going to speak at a funeral service. They had to go to the biggest church in Sackville to accommodate the 700 students that were coming from, her, from his high school, as well as all the staff and teachers, and then other teens and adults that were going to be in attendance. So I'm thinking, like, what am I going to say to these people? And then I'm also thinking, wow, this is a tremendous opportunity to be speaking to all these people. So there was enough pressure getting the funeral message prepared, and I don't know if you've ever done that or not, but there's pressure. You're trying to say the right words. I can get away with saying some 
Gregisms, as my associate pastor calls them here, mistakes in, in a regular service. But in in a funeral, you've got to get things right. And then there's all the time of preparing the service, getting some people to speak and say some words about this teen that had died, getting people to look after the music. And then a couple of days before the service began, I started getting phone calls from TV stations. And they had called the church wanting to come in with the, their crew and film the service. And the church said, talk to the guy that's running things. So they started phoning me. And, and, and I was tempted because the ego side of me was saying, look at all the people that will see you. And I could mention the name of the church as many times as they wanted. Because years ago, when we first started doing Operation Christmas Child, Breakfast Television actually brought us in for an interview to talk about what we were doing. And then one time they even came to our building and did their whole segment here. And every time they interviewed me, apparently I said something about the church because my brother was watching in another province and he said, Greg, you said Halifax Christian Church seven times in those interviews. So this could have been an opportunity for me to do that. But I said, no, this is going to be an intrusion in the family's life. But these people kept calling, so I consented to do a couple of interviews before the service began and then a couple after. And the radio guys were still able to be present in the service, the people from the Chronicle Herald, they were able to sit in there without being noticed. And they actually said accurate things. I was impressed with what they put in the paper later on. It was exactly what I had said. But then the TV people also were sitting in there. And the ones that I did the interview with after the service was over, they asked if I could go back up into the pulpit because they were impressed with what I said. And they wanted me to go back up there and say it again so that they could film it. And once again, I started hesitating a little. Ego starts to say, hmm. And then they said, you'll be on every TV in Atlantic Canada. And I still said no to that, even though they were persuasive. I had to keep my integrity, maintain my integrity. In this parable that Jesus is telling, one person prayed to be seen by others, the other person prayed to be seen by God. And one person compared himself with others, while the other person just compared himself to God. So sincere motives are vital. The second station that we approach here is sincere reverence. And it's an understanding of who God is. And the Bible says that he was standing at a distance, that he would not even look up to heaven. So that was a true acknowledgement of the fact that God was in control. And Max Lucado comments on this story, and he said, this was an earnest prayer that a good God in heaven would remember a forgotten soul on earth, that God's grace will seep into the cracks and fill one that the church lets slip through. So a prayer to take a life no one else can use and use it in a way that no one else could use it because he had a sense of personal unworthiness before God. And he never got into that game of 
pointing out to God the fact that he was better than some people. He, he never got into that at all. He just wanted to look, and he couldn't look upward because he was looking inward, and he was taking an inventory of his life. So it was obvious to him that he was failing miserably and that any amount of good works just wasn't going to do it for him. It wasn't going to get him out of the mess that he was in. So in Romans 12, Paul said, Because God has given me a special gift, I have something to say to everyone among you. Do not think you are better than you are. You must decide what you really are by the amount of faith God has given you. So there's a distinct lesson there for Christians. And we need to be constantly evaluating ourselves. We need to be inviting God to come in and to peek into our hearts and ask him to just erase anything that's phony. And that's dangerous to do. Because when we invite God in, he's going to find some things that we aren't even aware of hidden there in the corners. And he's going to make some alterations. But God doesn't want us that way. He wants us in, in spite of our imperfections. And you've heard pastors say this all the time. He loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to actually leave you just the way you are. He wants to change you. He loves you and he wants to change you. The final station is sincere repentance. And God wants us to come clean for what we've done and the scriptures say that this tax collector beat on his chest. And that was actually a Jewish phrase for God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He was sincerely sorry for what he had done. This was this expression of repentance or sorrow. And this station is a tough one because it's not easy to admit that we aren't perfect. A couple of weeks ago, we said that we need to pray specifically because it's so easy to pray, God, please forgive me of my sins, and just leave it at that. It's tougher to get more specific and say, Lord, I blew it again, and I took credit for work that somebody else in my office had done. Or, God, I disappointed you again, and I hung out with that group, and I got drunk. Or maybe you say, God, something comes over me, and I see something that I like that belongs to someone else. Or, Lord, I spend more time flirting with my co-workers than I do in loving my spouse. So it's tough to change. And it's tough to say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because if you do, then he's expecting change to take place. There was a junior high that had a unique problem. And a number of the girls were beginning to use lipstick now that's not a unique problem because that all begins around that age. But they were coming to school and then they were going into the bathrooms and putting the lipstick on there. And, and that's still okay. But then they were actually pressing their lips against the mirrors. So there were all these lip prints all over the mirrors and the custodians were having a tough time actually getting that stuff off. It was really annoying to them. So finally, the principal decided that she was going to do something about this. So she got a bunch of these girls together, the ones that she saw with lipstick on. She brought them into one of the bathrooms, and she pointed to that, and she said, look, this is becoming a real hassle for the custodians. They have to clean this mirror 
every day. So I'm going to show you how hard it is. And then the custodian took a long-handled squeegee, he stuck it in the toilet, and then he went over and he cleaned off the mirror. <laughs> so they had no more problems with lip prints on those mirrors. Don't wait until you have to experience the gross consequences of your sin before you stop. Because your sin will eventually kind of come to the surface. It will become apparent. And you better change on your own. Earl Nightingale said, You will remain the same until the pain of remaining the same becomes greater than the pain of change. And we usually don't change when we see the light. We actually wait and change when we start to feel the pain. But we need to do it long before that. Repentance is a change of direction. It, it, you've, you're changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that it doesn't happen easily. It doesn't happen just because you get more of the Holy Spirit. But one guy said it happens because the Holy Spirit gets more of you. And we're so great at covering up our sins, but we're not so great at confessing them. And if we would just open up, God promises this in 1 John. He said, but if we confess our sins, he will forgive our sins because we can trust God to do what is right. He will cleanse us from all the wrongs that we have done. The Calvary shows two things. It shows how far humankind will go as far as sin is concerned, but it also shows how far God is willing to go in order to deal with our sin situation. And it shows us that God loves us and he wants us to turn over the areas of our life and our past to him. Satan's going to try and haunt us with our past, but if you're under the blood of Jesus Christ, Satan can't touch you. He can't do anything. In Luke 18, Jesus said, I tell you, when this man went home, he was right with God. And our goal is that you go home today justified, and not because of anything that you've done, but because of the fact that you've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when your life is turned over to Jesus, you are justified. It's the only way that you're going to get to heaven. It's because then you will be covered by his blood. But it all starts by saying, Lord, I repent of the sin in my life. What I've done in the past, I want to just change all of that, and I want to become a new creation.